0: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and on the podcast this week, Katie Balls reads her politics column on Starmer's ceasefire predicament, Matthew Paris discusses the dangers of righteous anger and Fabian Carstairs details how he found himself on a dating blacklist. Up first, Katie Balls.
1: This could have been the week that Keir Starmer buckled under pressure from his party and called for a ceasefire in Gaza. A fifth of his MPs have publicly backed one, including 13 frontbenchers and big names such as Anasawa, Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham. Starmer's suggestion in a radio interview that Israel could be justified in defending itself by cutting off electricity and water to Gaza had already led to more than 25 Labour councillors quitting, while several shadow ministers are on resignation watch. Instead of U-turning in the face of party mutiny, Starmer doubled down. A ceasefire freezes a conflict, he said, and would lead Hamas with the infrastructure and the capabilities to carry out a second attack on Israel. It was not quite a clause four moment, but a significant one nonetheless. He knows that he is facing a test for a would-be prime minister. Many floating voters want to know, would he stand up to his party? He's now given the answer, or at least he'd like it to be seen that way. In private, he's more equivocal, and has yet to discipline a single shadow minister for not towing the party line. He knows if he did, then resignations would follow, says a senior party figure. He suspended the Labour whip from a backbencher for using the controversial phrase between the river and the sea, but only after the Tories sacked a ministerial aid for contradicting the government line. As the conflict in Gaza goes on, Stalin will face more internal criticism for his position, his best hope is that Joe Biden calls for a ceasefire soon. Keir needs covered to do it, says a sympathetic Labour MP. While the issue of the European Union has traditionally divided the Tories, Labour's sensitivity is Israel. You couldn't design a worse crisis for us, sighs a Labour aide. During the Yom Kippur War in 1973, Harold Wilson, as leader of the opposition, wanted to impose a free-line whip on a motion demanding the Tory government send arms to Israel. His deputy, Roy Jenkins, cautioned against it. To which Wilson replied, I've accommodated your effing conscience for years. Now you're going to have to take account of mine. Support for Israel cost even Tony Blair dearly in the end. His refusal to call for a ceasefire when Israel retaliated against Hezbollah, kidnapping two soldiers, led to a cabinet revolt, which was a trigger for his eventual departure. Starmer is not animated by foreign policy in the Middle East in the way his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, was. As a Labour MP, Starmer raised Palestine only twice in his eight years in Parliament before the 7th of October. In contrast, Corbyn did so 53 times since 2005 alone. Starmer wants to show that a Labour government can be trusted on foreign affairs. That means behaving like a government in waiting and acting in line with the UK's allies, particularly Washington. But in doing so, he risks creating both an electoral problem and a party management issue. Labour's divisions over Israel are more complicated than a simple case of the party right versus the hard left. The unhappiness of feeling is widespread, including among some shadow cabinet members on the right of the party. A lot of the sentiment is related to demographics. The shadow frontbenchers who go against the party line tend to be those who have large Muslim communities in their constituencies such as Jess Phillips in Birmingham. The electoral concern is Starmer's position could lead to many pro-Palestine Muslim voters staying at home at the next election. There are seats, such as Bolton, where this could make a big difference. Labour strategists in Scotland worry that they could lose a few seats to the SNP, which has called for a ceasefire. One senior Labour politician fears that a George Galloway-style party could emerge to stoke division. One problem for Starmer is that the backlash in his party is a reminder to voters that while Labour's leadership has changed, the party still has the same MPs. This is what we do, says the Labour party figure, fight about foreign policy. More immediately, Starmer's grip on his party is in question. While he and his team are keen to play down talk of disunity, most accept governing will be tricky in the party's current state. You would need to have collective responsibility on foreign policy, says a Labour old-timer. The fact he can't manage it speaks volumes. Some in Starmer's inner circle complain that he should be focused on the cost of living rather than foreign policy debates, which have much less resonance with most voters. But they are likely to be disappointed. It's not just Israel-Palestine that could become an open saw for the party. There are two upcoming foreign elections that could cause Starmer a lot of trouble. The first is November's US presidential campaign, which could overlap with the UK general election for the first time since 1964. If it looks as if Donald Trump will return to the White House, Starmer will need to choose between statesman-like comments or playing to his base. His shadow foreign secretary, David Lamy, joined a protest in 2018, trying to bar Trump, this tyrant in a toupee, from the UK state visit. The Indian general election in the spring will cause even more problems for Stama. He wants to win back Indian voters, the UK's largest ethnic minority community, who abandoned Labour in large numbers in 2019 after the party voted for a motion at conference criticising India's actions towards Muslim-majority Kashmir. Starmer has already changed the party position to be more supportive of the Modi government. Yet, in the and Spen by-election in 2021, where votes for Muslim communities were needed, a Labour leaf that was issued a picture of Modi and Boris Johnson together, suggesting that a Tory MP would not be good for their interests. As Modi seeks re-election, Starmer will once again come under pressure to take a side. In all these cases, the problem for the Labour leader is that the things he needs to say in order to show that he is serious about governing are the same things that will put him in a difficult position with a large portion of his party.
0: That was Casey Balls. Next, Matthew Paris.
2: From abroad, I've returned to a country where, in language to which the word shrill hardly does justice, fellow British commentators have been letting fly on both sides of the argument about Gaza and how Israel should or should not respond to Hamas's unspeakable attacks on the 7th of October. There's just one thing both sides, the British Muslim banner wavers and those who bay for a war of attrition in Gaza, seem to agree upon, but whatever the answer might be, it is, in the most important sense of the word, simple. It is not simple. Things so rarely are. The simple bit is who, in the immediate, is right and who wrong, and few of us need reminding of the answer here. But it's the hard bit that matters. Can a remedy be found by the means proposed? I'm a columnist who believes that ought implies can. That's why it seemed to me as a youth that the United States should desist from trying to napalm communists out of Vietnam. Why, as an adult, I argued against intervention in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria and Libya. I understood very well the moral arguments for cleansing these places of foolish and dangerous or wicked forces, but I doubted the practicalities. For me, if the practical proposition fails, the moral argument falls at the last fence, and all talk of what justice demands, however heartfelt, becomes useless. Worse than useless, in fact, it can be dangerously counterproductive. You will search hard to find a commentator more scathing than me about the alliance between parts of the Labour left, anti-Semites and vicious, bigoted and militant elements among pro-Palestinian Muslims. These are a dark shadow in our country. But around that shadow is a large and soft penumbra of people of all faiths and races whose sympathies have been engaged, you may say naively, by the historic sufferings of the Palestinian people. And what could be better calculated to drive the naive into the arms of the malicious Than sentiments like these. I quote If you stand in Britain with a Hamas flag, you should not be allowed to be free in Britain. You should be arrested, have your citizenship withdrawn, your passport withdrawn, you should be deported, you should be sent to Gaza to try your luck there. I have been disturbed by the language from my fellow columnist, Douglas Murray. I read with admiration Peter Oborne's cry for conciliation from the Christian quarter of Jerusalem, but Douglas's efforts to dial up the righteous anger need to be taken head-on. There are moments in history to dial down, and this is one of them. He got his cheers, but if we are really starting to try to arrest and deport people who joined a demonstration where Hamas flags were seen – or even joined choruses of jihad, surely you can guess the consequences. Hundreds of thousands more would join in solidarity with these so-called martyrs. Jihad is just a word, a stupid word, meaning more or less depending on whose mouth it's in. Do we want to raise it up to the status of a signifier with the plight of civilians in Gaza? Be careful what you wish for, Douglas. You'll have a million ready to chant it. It is not the right of non-Israelis to tell the Israelis what to do, he writes. It is up to them to do what they need to do. Whatever we can do to support them, we must do. Steady on. Are the people of Israel all sure what they need to do? We're talking about a vigorous democracy here. There are people in Israel who fear their country may be walking into a military trap in Gaza and worry, too, about risking that most precious of Israel's assets, international sympathy. Benjamin Netanyahu, to whom Douglas has, he allows us to understand, talked privately, plainly thinks he knows what to do. But does Netanyahu speak for them? And if not, may not we? Douglas complains we're extending the right to free speech to people who would not extend it to us. To me, this is the acid test of your belief in freedom. It's why I've consistently opposed laws against hate speech, including violently, even provocatively hateful speech against people like me. I had thought of Douglas as a fellow critic of the cancelling of unwelcome opinion. His turnaround is curiously unself aware. Not, however, as unself aware as what follows. In a separate event, at a memorial event for the dead of the 7th of October at a London synagogue, Douglas said that he had spoken in private to the late Jonathan Sachs, who told him that to be a Jew is to have a sense of memory. I'm afraid that to be a Palestinian Arab is to have a sense of memory too. Isn't memory part of the root of this whole awful business? Give me, O Lord, a little less memory and a lot more willingness to start from now. A more temperate and, to me, more moving critique of our national response to events in Israel and Gaza came from Hadley Freeman in The Times. But there was a note there too that disturbed me. Freeman's column was almost plaintive, headlined, Unspeakable Slaughter, but I've Seen Nobody Flying an Israel Flag. There were many Ukrainian flags. This does bear thinking about. As, she says, a liberal Jew, she acknowledges that there is Palestinian as well as Israeli history. But then she turns on us, the worried bien pensant in the middle. And her anger with us, like Douglas's, is palpable for not coming down, she thinks, on Israel's side. The never-quite-voiced hint in her column is those who stand back may betray incipient anti-Semitism. Let me quote her. It's very sad, but it's complicated, say the more nervous ones, stroking the Ukraine flag emoji on their social media handle for reassurance that they're a good person. Close quote. Well, it is complicated. It is not to belittle Jewish hurt and rage, the innocence of those slaughtered by Hamas, or the wickedness of Hamas themselves, to say that where people do believe in their cause, retaliatory slaughter may sow dragon's teeth. So yes, it's complicated. And no, Douglas and Hadley, I'm not an anti-Semite. And millions of us troubled about what should be done next, would resent that suggestion very much.
0: That was Matthew Paris. And finally, Fabian Carstairs. There's
3: an online blacklist of men you should avoid dating, and I'm on it. When I discovered this over summer, a colleague gave me a nudge on, showed me a screenshot of my dating profile. That's you, isn't it? A wave of fear passed through me. I had been posted on a Facebook group named Are We Dating the Same Guy?, I set out to discover more. The group itself was easy enough to find. It started in New York last year to help the city's single women avoid red flag men. The group describes itself as a place where women can warn other women about liars, cheaters, abusers, or anyone who exhibits any type of toxic or dangerous behaviour. Now it has more than 2 million members from 120 cities across the world. The London group has nearly 73,000 members. Joining the group was gonna be less easy. For starters, you have to be female. To gain access, members have to go through a rigorous and tightly controlled screening process. Applicants must regurgitate in their own words the group's 900 word rules come manifesto. No men, no sharing outside the group. Moderators do reverse image searches on profile pictures to catch fake accounts. There's more than a hint of paranoia. You'll be banned if you mention this group or the existence of groups like this on social media, on a podcast, on the radio, to the media or anywhere else in public. A friend kindly lent me a Facebook account and I passed the application. Inside there's a general format to the posts. Someone will post pictures of a guy and ask the crowd if there's any gossip about him. People will respond with intel if they have it. Sometimes it's an ex-lover, other times a friend of a friend... On rare occasions, a heartbroken wife. One anonymous user asked about Joe, 26, from North London. The photo was of him in his bathroom wearing a tank top and sunglasses. He only seems present when I'm with him, she said. When I'm not there, it feels like out of sight, out of mind. There was one response below. Matched on hinge with this guy, chatted, had a call, then he ghosted me. Another girl asked for advice on her boyfriend. He had recently cheated and she didn't know what to do. Expose him was the advice if you have pictures of him with you expose him he played you it is time that you play with him The group addresses the main problem with modern dating the fact you don't know who you're meeting Unlike with traditional matchmaking on a dating app. There is no real vetting process Instead you learn about your match in a piecemeal fashion dating apps make cheating easy when every swipe is a fresh slate so, at a time when a large proportion of under 30s rely on them to initiate romantic relationships, this kind of group makes sense. In theory, it's akin to a benevolent citywide sewing circle. The posts varied from innocuous to catty, concerned to tearful. Voyeuristic, sure, but not inherently harmful. It felt very different when I found myself on the chopping block. Fabian, SW5, it said, accompanied by a screen grab of my dating profile. He really rushed the relationship along very quickly and asked me to be his girlfriend, invited me to go to Paris, etc. Last week, when he was meant to be visiting my family, he cancelled and wanted to drop the girlfriend-boyfriend label while he figures himself out. Found out yesterday that he had taken another girl to Paris on the weekend. She was right. She exposed my lies. I told her I was committed while I pursued a relationship with a French girl. It was bad behaviour, I know, but love is complicated. I was unlucky, but lucky. Unlucky because I'll have an association with the group indefinitely. Any woman can join it, search my name and read the post. The crawling feeling you get when a very personal part of your life is available for the world to see will take a while to fade. Lucky, however, because she posted the truth. There is no verification of the stories on there, no fair hearing. Any woman with a vendetta has the potential to do a large amount of reputational and emotional damage. One Reddit user who found himself on the group said, It's weighing on me and leaving me depressed. It seems that every date carries a penalty of an ignominious and dishonest public shaming. Had my ex decided to stick the knife in with a few untruths, it could have been a lot worse. It was an embarrassing experience, but I learned from it. Before, I dated in a way that could have been designed by Jez from Peep Show. Sometimes I tell them I love them early on on a first date just to get things off to a good start. Now I'm more open and honest. The French girl and I are in
0: a happy, stable relationship. We're even getting a cat. That was Fabian Carstairs. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read much more like them. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.